I quickly turned to uh, Acts 25 and these 22 verses that we had, and I thought, you know, okay, that's gonna that's gonna be good. And then a couple weeks ago, when I when I reread the verses, um, I, I would have to admit that I felt like what Sandy told you you last week, where you kind of go, well, yeah, you, usually these are the kind of verses I skip over, and let's get on to the uh, the part where. Where you know Paul is actually going back and forth, or uh, let me let me let me find something that has has more meaning. And uh, even though that was my original attitude, as I dove into to these verses uh, over the last several days, let me tell you, there's just a gold mine of stuff in here. And I know you find that every. I know that's why you're here. I know that's why this has been a great experience for you at Amen. Is that as you really study deep into God's Word, as you really take time uh, to uh, to to get these things out, you end up feasting on things you you didn't you didn't even know existed, and you didn't you didn't even know could be this rich. And that's exactly how I feel about the verses that we have uh, here before us this morning. The context, of course, is that uh, is that there's been this there's been this this riot really caused uh, by the Jewish leaders who vowed to kill Paul, and uh, and you know he was arrested, and then he was as we heard last week from Sandy he was uh, tried you know I put in quotes uh, by Felix who was this you know ruthless leader on behalf of Rome of of the. Um, Israelite nation at that time. And then at the very end, from what you finished up last week, he's just left in prison for two years. Uh, nothing's ever done except that Felix keeps bringing Paul to his presence. Paul keeps sharing the gospel with him and presenting him the truths about Christ and the, and the return of Christ. And of course, Felix is, is looking for a bribe and he's wanting something to, to happen out of this whole thing. And now, what has happened since uh, chapter 24, between chapter 24 and 25, is that Felix, in his ruthlessness and his really his poor management uh, on behalf of Rome, has been called back to Rome. And uh, some, some say that this, this happened in, in disgrace. Some say it was just to, to try to put him in a place that he wouldn't cause such a, a problem. And they brought in Festus, who is going to be a leader, supposedly, who will just kind of keep things calm, won't, won't be so, so radical, won't be so crazy, won't be so violent in what's going on. And Festus gets back and he goes right to work. He comes right, right af- after this, these things. And one of the things he attends to right away is this guy Paul, who's been in prison for two years. And that's where we pick up in Acts chapter 25, beginning at uh, verse 1, reading through verse 22. Now three days after Festus ha- had arrived in the province... He went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about that man, let them bring charges against him. After he had stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus... Wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, 
I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But there is nothing to their charges against me, and no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there for many days, Felix laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against them. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had the opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid out against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charges in his case of such as evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss as how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. This is the word of God. Several years ago, in fact, I guess now it's, it's almost been 15 years ago, I was, uh, I was leaving, about to leave a church in uh, Augusta, Georgia, First Pres Augusta, and I was going to uh, be a youth director at a pa- uh, church in Greenville, South Carolina. And there was this uh, older man in our church who was a pastor, um, Dr. Peter Letchford. He was, uh, at the time, 78 years old, and uh, really hilarious guy, educated in Oxford, and just, um, and just brilliant. And I remember he gave a devotional at our, at our staff meeting that I quickly found out was pretty much pointed at me. Um, and in this devotional, he, he read from the verses preceding uh, the, uh, the Battle of Jericho. And if you remember, the night before the Battle of Jericho, um, you have Joshua going around Jericho late at night as a great general, kind of scoping things out, kind of making his plan how he's going to attack the city. And... Uh, and he comes face to face with a theophany, a, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. And he doesn't know who this man is. And he says to, uh, to this person who's right there at the wall, he says, are you on our side or are you, are you our, our enemy? And the man answers, neither. Um, but as commander of the Lord's army, I have come. And it says that Joshua instantly fell down on his knees and worshipped uh, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. And then it goes on as, as, as the Lord goes ahead and tells Jericho, this is what you're going to do. Here's my crazy battle plan for taking down Jericho. And then you read the story of the, the, the battle of Jericho and the walls falling down and all that. And Dr. Peter Lechford looked at me, he didn't look at anybody else, and he said, Todd, what's the big miracle in the story? What's the great miracle? And uh, I knew I was wrong, but the only thing I could think of was that the walls fell down. You know, that's, I knew that wasn't right. So I said, I think it's something other than the walls falling down, Dr. Lechford. And he said, he said, you're right. He said, having the walls fall down is not a big deal to God. Not, not a, 
He said the real issue was having Joshua fall down. That's the miracle. And then he looked at me and he said, Todd, God is way more concerned with what He's going to do in you than what He's going to do through you. And that's what I think we find ourselves in here. It's, it's real easy for us to look at what, 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 we're going to, what we're going to see this morning and have it be something about what Paul was doing for God, not realizing that there was a bigger concern on God's part about what God was doing in Paul, not what Paul what he was doing through Paul. And especially when you think about the concept of him being in prison. And I know Sandy said last week so accurately, listen, there's, God never wastes our time. There's, there's no waste of time in our lives, which is such a blessing, especially in a culture that's so concerned about time, to know that, that God is always redeeming the time. And God is redeeming the time because God is more concerned about what He wants to do in us than what He wants to do through us. God is more concerned with what He wants to do in Paul, ultimately, than what He wants to do through Paul. And we're going to see these four things that you have there in your notes. First of all, in these first seven verses, you're going to see Paul respond with faithfulness in the midst of injustice. Faithfulness in the midst of injustice. And the injustice here is, is pretty significant. I mean, he's been left in prison for two years when, when, when nobody has yet to prove anything. You know, so he's, he's been tried, he's been heard, and the case is brought for him. It's obvious that there's nothing there, but he's still in prison two years later. And, uh, and the charges that have been brought before him, as it says in verse 7 there, no one could prove these things. You know, he, they, they, he, they've gone over and over and over again, and nobody, they're serious charges, and they're many, but there's no, there's no proof. They haven't gotten anywhere in this, in this case. And then there's a word that appears several times. The first time it appears really at the, at the end of verse, uh, excuse me, at the end of chapter 25 in verse, excuse me, end of chapter 24 in verse 27. Uh, when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porteus Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor. That word favor appears there. That word favor appears in uh, chapter 25 verse 3. That word favor appears in verse 9. And, uh, and, and Luke is making the point that, uh, that there's a lot of scheming going on here. <laughs> that there's not, there's not a fairness. There is an injustice that's taking place. And people are, are offering favors and trying to get favors. And, uh, and so this isn't about justice. This is about the good old boys club trying to work things out so they can get what they want. And Paul is stuck in that. Uh, and so the injustice of, of his trial being just sitting there in limbo, of, of a trial that, that there's, no, there's no proof for any of these charges. And in the midst of this, people are, are really manipulating and using him to get favors from each other. And you know, one of our struggles when it comes to the injustices we face, or the resistance we face as followers of Christ, really comes in those moments when we've been obedient... We've been obedient, and we kind of expect some kind of victory. We know we're going to have hardship. I know in my life, you know, I, I know I'm going to face some resistance. There's going to be some tough times. I know God wants to take me through different times of suffering, but I, <laughs> I kind of want to set the timing for that, you know? I'm like, okay, Lord, it's been a few months of me really struggling with this thing, so I'm feeling like it's about time for you to give me a little victory, you know? I'm ready for a year of jubilee on this thing. And, uh, and, and that's, that's my expectation. And, and I can give you story after story of my life. You can do the same in yours. I remember when I was a, a senior in college playing soccer. I was so excited about my senior year. I was, 
in all seriousness, my, my, uh, my relationship with my teammates and, and even the playing soccer was so connected to my relationship with Christ that I really would say that I felt what, uh, what Eric Little describes in, in the movie Chariots of Fire. I felt God's pleasure when I played. I mean, it was intricately connected. I felt like I was being a good steward of this gift. And along comes this hotshot freshman we had recruited who, I hate to say it, but he really was better than me. And he took my spot. So it's my senior year. And, uh, and for the first half of the season, I just, I just grew more and more bitter. This is my senior year. This is my last year to play college soccer. We recruited some freshman who's taken my spot. And I just grew bitter until at, there was a point at which I was just kind of angry, shaking my fists at God. And I felt like the Lord was saying... Todd, I've got, I've got something for you to do. You, you're so worried about being with those guys. And there's all these younger guys who have been, who've been amazing uh, as, as high school players and now are struggling with their self-esteem as they, as they try to make it up as a part of this college team. You're, you're supposed to be a good example to them and you're not being. And so I thought, all right, I can, I can be a Barnabas. That's going to be my job. I'm going you know, to take a second, you know, second seat to Paul and I'll be a Barnabas and I'm just going to care for these guys. And, uh, and I did. But here's the problem. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, and the Lord will bless me before the end of the season. <laughs> you, know? you know, that's what's going to happen. It never happened. <laughs> it never happened. Because the Lord was more concerned with what He wanted to do in me than what He wanted to do through me. And what He was calling me to was faithfulness in the midst of those things. And that's what God is calling you to, is a faithfulness in the midst of the resistance or the injustice that, uh, that you're receiving. And Paul, you know, Paul's response two years into this imprisonment doesn't seem to be any different than it was two years before. I mean, when you see him go before Festus, you see the same respect. You see the same... Um, uh, calculated kindness. You see the same honesty, but it, you, you see the same things you saw two years ago. When I'm telling you, most of us would have come out two years later, and we stood before Festus, and we would have said, "You know what? I'm done. I'm done doing it God's way, because it's obviously not working, and God's obviously not blessing me." And yet, the the right thing, or the thing that we see Paul do here, is a a faithfulness in the midst of injustice. You know, an incredible example of this appears in Daniel chapter 3. Remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I love that story. And you remember when they, when, they, uh, when they don't bow down to the great statue that's been set up, and they're brought before Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar knows them because they're part of his court, and he says, hey, listen, <laughs> why aren't you bowing down? If you, you understand, if you don't bow down, you will die. And they speak up and they say, listen, we're not afraid of you. We have a Lord who will take care of us. And we know, we know that we do not need to bow down. We do not need to fear you because the Lord will take care of us. And then this is amazing. Uh, Daniel chapter 3 verse 18 says this. They say, but if he doesn't, we still will not worship you. But if not, they still, we still will not worship you. We are going to be faithful no matter what. And that's what Paul, that's what we see Paul doing right here. The second thing that comes out in these verses, uh, verses 8 through 10, is the truth in the midst of lies. Truth in the midst of lies. 
Paul states uh, his innocence and, and does an excellent job like he did two years ago, like he probably did every time he was before Felix. Now he's got to deal with this guy Festus. He, uh, he states his innocence. Festus offers an alternative. He's trying to find a way out. Obviously, Festus is, you know, he's a nice guy, but he's a, he's a get-along guy. You know, like he's not, you know, it, it seems right. He seems like, well, he's kinder. He's a better leader. But you look at the indecision that's going on here, and he's, he's not a leader. He's just looking for the path of least resistance. He's trying to just, he's going to smooth it out. He's not going to do what's right. He's going to do what he thinks kind of pleases everybody, kind of works out for everybody. And so he really is a coward. There's no courage here at all. There's no leadership here at all. It's someone who is, who is just trying to make everybody get along. Like, let's just, let's make that happen. Let's have that be the, the case in, the, in this area. That's my job here is to make sure this doesn't upset Rome. So I'm just not going to upset Rome. And uh, he offers this alternative. Well, you know, Paul, you want to go down and we can try this down in Jerusalem? And Paul's like, I, I'm no idiot here. <laughs> you know, I know, what's, I know what's going on and, and I'm a Roman citizen. So I'm in the right place. I'm before the right tribunal. And listen, uh, if, if we can't work this out here, then I'm, then I'm appealing. And it's actually, it's not, he's not appealing because there's been no verdict. He's just saying, listen, I have a right to be tried before Caesar if you're not going to try me here. Uh, and, and so he just, in a calculated way, just lays out the facts. And again, you see in verses 8 through 10, there's this whole thing of favor because it says in verse 9, but Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, and, uh, and there's a lot of scheming going on, going on all over again. And you know, you and I operate, uh, unfortunately, most of our day in a context where there's just a lot of scheming going on. Um, I know that a lot of you older men in here remember a day uh, when, when the idea of truth and your word being your word was something that was a lot more clear and solidified than it is now. And people talk about integrity and your word being your word, but, in the, but they've, they've shaped it and kind of morphed it into something where, well, you're allowed a little wiggle room with that. Uh, you know, even, even uh, I think it was in the early 90s when you have... Uh, English departments like Duke University and University of North Carolina, you had those English departments starting to deconstruct human language. You know, and then Bill Clinton added to that deconstruction of language. <laughs> Where you could literally, you know, yeah, let's, let's, not, let's not totally blame Bill Clinton. He was, just, he was just following the English departments of UNC and Duke on this one. Does that word really mean that word? Does that word only have that meaning because it's come to this meaning because of the culture behind it? And, and we start to, to let words and their meanings fall apart. And you guys operate in that kind of world often. And it's a temptation to become a schemer yourself. You think, in order for me to really operate in business or to operate even in places like law or medicine, I've got to, be, I've got to scheme with my words. And we see here that, that Paul chooses not to scheme with his words. He knows there's a lot of scheming going on. But he chooses not to do that. He chooses instead to calmly state the truth. He even goes as far to say, Festus, you know there's no basis for these charges. <laughs> he makes it clear, hey, listen, here are the three things against me. You know, and, and listen, I haven't done anything against the Jews. I haven't defamed the temple. And, and I'm not rebelling against Rome. And you've heard the charges, Festus, and you know these things aren't true. And here's the struggle in that. 
it, it, you know, all of us sitting here, you can see this argument. You're going, you know what, Paul, that's probably not going to work. <laughs> There's too much scheming going on. So you might want to be a little more crafty. But being crafty would, would, would force him to lose his integrity before the Lord. And when we scheme, what we're doing is we're saying, yeah, Lord, I know you're sovereign, <laughs> but I feel like maybe you need a little help with this, air, this thing right here. I know I should trust you, but it seems like there's not a single chance that this will work out the right way. And so, yeah, the method isn't exactly right, but Lord, my goal is right. <laughs> and all that is, when we do that, is, is just a lack of trust that the Lord has it, that He's in control, that, that He's in, in charge of these whole things. And uh, that's the reason that we're called to live above reproach. Um, so that we don't have anything to... What's the phrase Sandy used last week? There's no CYD behavior for us. You know, if, if, you, if you have lived your life above reproach, then it literally doesn't matter who finds out anything about your life. It just doesn't matter. And though there might be things that just, you know, by common courtesy you know, might be kept secret or, you know, not everybody needs to know everything about your life. But if they did, it'd be okay. Because you, you literally have nothing to hide. And Paul here, he has nothing to hide. And if you turn over, just for, like, before we leave this point... This is this point of, of a living above reproach and the reason for it is made clear in 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter is writing to these uh, Christians who are facing all kinds of, of persecution and, uh, and wondering about uh, their place in the kingdom and all that Jesus has said. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter writes these words to the believers. But you are chosen, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. And then listen to this, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of salvation. So even if the world, and the world will, the world will speak against you just because you are a follower of Jesus. And, and you will be accused of things just because you're a follower of Jesus. They accuse Jesus, they're going to accuse you. And uh, what we're called to as followers of Christ is to live above reproach so that we can stand like Paul in front of any place and say, you're free to look anywhere you want. You can look, look into my finances. Look into my family life. Look into my private life. Please look at any of those things because I don't have, any, I don't have anything to hide. It's a beautiful thing to watch Paul just speak the truth in the midst of lies and, and basically say to Festus, and everybody, I've got nothing to hide. I'm not going to scheme with you. I'm not going to manipulate this. Well, moving on, in uh, verses 11 and 12, we see Paul display courage 
in the midst of cowardice. Courage in the midst of cowardice. And what is a cowardice here? We've already, we've already mentioned a little bit. Festus, uh, you know, in verse 10, says, uh, Paul says, Hey, I'm sitting before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I've done no wrong. And then he says to Festus, As you yourself know very well. He knows. Festus knows Paul is innocent. You can even see it in his discussion with, uh, with Agrippa that's going to come later. He's like, yeah, I don't, I don't really know what's going on here. <laughs> I can't really get any charges here. I can't figure it out. He's looking for somebody else to make the decision. Hey, Paul, you want to go down to Jerusalem? We can work this thing out. In Jer- he just wants somebody else to take care of this. He's not going to take care of it. He's supposed to be a leader. He's not a leader. And yet you see Paul stand up with great courage in verse 11 and say, Hey, listen, I'm not afraid of death. I'm not, the exact words, I do not seek to escape death. Paul is not afraid. And as Sandy said last week, uh, that's what we're called to do. We're called, Paul has already died to everything. So what could, what would he be afraid of? I don't know if you, uh, you all remember, I guess it was, man, it was almost 10 or 12 years ago. It was this, uh, this, little, this little business book about change that came out. It sold you know, something like 24 million copies in a matter of five years. Yeah, the book, Who Moved My... It's not really a book. It's a pamphlet. Who Moved My Cheese? And uh, I kept hearing all these businessmen talking about this. this uh, and I thought, well, I've got to find it. When I found it, I was you know, a little surprised because really it was like the size of this. <laughs> you know, like... Wow, that's changing the business world? Let me, let me pick that up. And, and in this book, Who Moved My Cheese, if you haven't read it before, it's about these mice who are in this maze. And um, there's a certain place where the cheese is put down every day. And so they just know that's where we go. That's where we get the cheese. That's where we get the cheese. And one day they go there and the cheese is gone. And so there's, there's different groups of these mice that make different decisions. Some of them are like, we're just going to stay here until more cheese shows up. It's got to show up sometime. And other mice are like, no, we've got to go look for other cheese, you know. And, uh, and the whole idea business-wise is, hey, when things shift, are you willing to take those risks? And in this, in this book, and it, it, is, it is interesting, but one of the things that, uh, that, that is in this book that really, uh, frankly, arrested me, there's, uh, there's, there's, there are pictures in this, this little book, and uh, in the pictures are just signs that appear on the wall of the maze. And I'm reading this thing, it takes like 30 minutes to read. And I'm reading this thing. I was sitting in an airport reading it. And they, all of a sudden I flipped the page and there's this, there's this picture of one of the signs that had appeared on, on the edge of the maze. And this is what the sign said. What would you do if you weren't afraid? And I remember being in the airport and just feeling like somebody just punched me in the chest. I put the book down and I thought, wow. Todd, what would you do if you weren't afraid? we come to a moment like this with Paul and courage and the mystic cowardice, that's a great question for all of us in here to think of. What would you do in your family if you weren't afraid? What would you do in your relationships if you weren't afraid? What would you do in, in, in your workplace if you weren't afraid? What would you do in this city if you weren't afraid? See, our struggle, our great struggle in the midst of, of, of these things, of living this life, is that, is that we have fears. There's certain parts of our lives we want to preserve. In fact, I would tell you right now, I'm not, 
honestly, I'm not, most of you probably aren't, I'm not really afraid of dying. I'm afraid of, of the pain that might accompany dying. But I'm not really afraid of just going from this moment to heaven. I don't have a big fear of that. You know where my fear comes? All this other silly, stupid stuff that I think I need to preserve in order to enjoy life here. And I cling to that and I'm afraid I'm going to lose it. And it handicaps me in the mission that God has for me. Paul here says to Festus, listen, I, I'm not, I'm, I don't seek to escape anything. You can, you can bring it all you want to. And that's why in Philippians chapter 1, Paul could write, hey, listen, I'm not sure what I should do. I, I would love to go and be with Christ, but you know, there's some great work for me to do here for Christ. I know he wants me to carry out these things for you, so I'm excited about that. But boy, I long to be with Jesus. I don't, I don't really have any desire to be in this world anymore. But I know He has a mission for me. And I'm torn. Because for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I wrestle with that. For me to live, Paul says, he doesn't notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't, for me to live is to finish this business. For me to live is to see, you know, my son or, da- or daughter walk down the aisle. For me to live is, uh, is to g- get to retirement. For, for me to live, he doesn't say any of those things. He says, for me to live is Christ. I get excited about the mission, but, I, but that's, that's the only thing I'm attached to. In this world, I'm only attached to the mission. I'm not attached to anything else. And I'm ready, I'm ready to go. You know, I'm sure you've heard plenty of times on these Thursday mornings, brothers, we are, we are in a spiritual battle. This, is, this, is, this battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities of darkness. We are in a battle. You're in a battle for, for your families. You're in a battle for your children. You're in a battle for the, for the name of Christ and the glory of Christ in this city. You're in a battle for, for, for justice to be done to people who are oppressed, to care for those who are poor. You're in a battle uh, to live out the mission of Christ. It's a battle. And if any of you in here have, have ever served in the military, you know when you go into battle, you can't be attached to other things or you're useless as a, a soldier. You cannot be attached to pedestrian things. You cannot be attached to things that distract you from the battle. And we've got to, we've got to live like that. We've got to remember that. And as men, we, we, we've got to keep the mission in front of us and we can't, we can't let these things entangle us, as it says in Hebrews. We've got to shed those things. And we've got to be like Paul, have courage in the midst of cowardice to be able to say, I don't seek to escape death. I literally don't care what you do to me. Because I long to be with Christ, but hey, as long as I'm here, I got the mission. Well, then and finally this morning, this little section here with, uh, in verses 13 through 22, when, when uh, <laughs> Felix is, uh, excuse me, Festus is talking to Agrippa and Bernice. And, you know, by the way, if, if you weren't wanting to skip over the other verses, these verses especially, you're like, what in the world is even in here? 
You know, there's all this detail about what, I mean, nobody's pulling their life verse out of these verses. You know, you're not like, nobody has that plastered on their door anywhere. You know, you're wondering what, what is this unnecessary detail? And let me just say, be encouraged by unnecessary details in the Bible. Tim Keller says it's one of the greatest uh, proofs that this stuff wasn't made up. Because the idea of detail in fiction was something that didn't occur in, in, uh, in literary device until the late 1800s. It just didn't occur in fiction. And so you have two choices when it comes to the New Testament. You can either say, wow, these writers of the New Testament were so brilliant that they discovered a new literary form of fiction. They used it, but for some reason nobody used it again for 1,700 years. Or, the other option is, they were writing the facts. They were writing history. And Tim Keller says, it's just, it, he goes, it's a really, it's a glaring uh, apologetic for the truth of the New Testament, the details that are in there. Uh, and he said, you, you should glory in that. It's, it's, it's a great testament to those things. But you read along and you're reading about Agrippa and Bernice. And Agrippa is the, is the great-grandson of Herod the Great and the grandson of um, the other Herod that you read about in Acts 12. And uh, he took over, as you read in the, in the stock commentary, he took over uh, when he was 17. And Rome didn't really you know, want to give a 17-year-old too much. So they gave him this kind of northern kingdom, kind of a, you know, hey, yeah, you're king up here of, uh, you know, <laughs> the northern part of this county. <laughs> so he comes down in his pomp and circumstance to meet with uh, the new Roman procurator and he's there with Festus and they're having this time together and you read about it and you're kind of reading along and you're kind of probably thinking blah, 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 blah. But don't miss verse 19. Look what it says in verse 19. As Festus is telling the story, he said, rather... They, being the Jewish leaders, had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. This is Christ in the midst of religion. And this might be the most relevant point for us this morning. And, and you may be aware of this, but, or you may not be aware of this. But right now, the current tolerance and meshing of religions that is occurring, and I'm not talking about in New York City or California. I'm talking about in the schools that you and I send our kids and grandchildren to in this city and their relationships. The meshing and, and, and mixing and compromising of religions is greatly significant. The blessing is, the blessing is that our sons and daughters have real friendships with people who are Jewish or Muslim or Hindu. That is a blessing. Because we're called to be salt in the midst of darkness. We're not called to huddle off on our own. We're called to be in, in, in the world, but not of the world. And our sons and daughters, our grandchildren have real relationships. Here's the struggle in the current culture right now. Because, because when we grew up, we waged war in this world over ideology. And our our. our Children and grandchildren have grown up in a world where wars have been raged, uh, waged over religion and they're tired of it. And it doesn't make sense to them. And so the idea of us getting along, they're trying to look for some way. And things that, some of the things that are being taught, you know, that, that Judaism and uh, Islam and Christianity are all from the same source. So we just need to figure out what are the common denominators there. And I'm telling you, you could walk over to the youth group at Second Pres or any youth group in the city and you could ask 
kids, and if they told you honestly, probably half of them would believe, yeah, there's, there's, there's truth to that. And though they have sincere relationships with Christ, their tendency is to believe, well, if you're sincere about Islam, if you're sincere about Hinduism, if you're sincere about Judaism, then, then that's got to be a way too. And there's a real struggling, there's a, there's a real meshing of religion that's taking place. And you think, well, what is the answer to this? I mean, we're seeing religious tolerance, and it is right. We don't need to be waging war over religions. We don't need to be standing up and, and fighting over these things. But it's not compromise. It can't be compromised, and I'll tell you why. Because of the person of Jesus Christ. You see, the life, the death, the resurrection, and ascension of Christ is a game changer. And that's what I teach students, and that's what needs to be taught in our homes. Man, we've got to teach this to our sons, our daughters, our, grand, our grandchildren. We need to speak up about this. Because the person of Christ, as Paul preaches it, as it's seen in the Gospels, is a complete game changer. Paul says in Corinthians, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then none of this matters. <laughs> And if, if, and he goes on to say, if, if only in this life you have hope, you know, oh, Christ is just a religion I've, Christianity is just a religion I've chosen. If only if you in this life do you have hope, Paul says, then we're to be pitied more than anyone. People should look at us and go, gosh, I'm sorry about those Christians. They're kind of pathetic. But the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus is a game changer. There's no compatibility with any other religion. None. Because Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. It's a game changer. Not that we should fight wars over it, but we should be clear. And, and, as, and as I tell you know, anybody who I'm in a calm conversation about, listen, people who really believe Islam don't think it meshes with Judaism and Christianity. It's exclusive. People who, who true Orthodox Jews do not think it meshes with Islam and Christianity. It's exclusive. So don't, don't buy into the, that there's a problem with Christianity being exclusive. Yes, Christ is both exclusive and inclusive. He says, if anyone comes to me. And Christ is the game changer. Can't be any compromise. And here's the deal. That's why Paul had a platform to speak. We struggle sometimes to wonder why we have opportunity to really share the gospel in this city. And this is why we've compromised too much in our lives about Christ. And if we would not compromise, we would stand out so significantly that people are either going to ask questions... Or they're going to resist. There's going to have to do something. You're going to bother them. And that's not going to be because you're ugly, mean, not kind, not polite. It's just going to bother them. And they're going to have to know. Or there's going to have to be discussion. There's going to have to be something. And that's what's happened with Paul. Because he's constantly preaching Christ crucified and raised from the dead. And that's what gives him a platform to keep going back. That's why he's getting to speak in all these places. Because he didn't blend in. Because for him, Christ was a game changer. It, it, it changed everything that was going on. 
You know, I heard this past week and uh, had a discussion this past week, and I'll close with this, that um, just, uh, just how wonderfully polite we are in East Memphis. And we are. We're awesome at it. And I've lived in several other places. And frankly, I just feel like a lot of people are just rude compared to Memphis. I mean, we, we're great at, we are great at being kind to people. Now, our problem is when it comes to our Christian faith, there's a difference between being kind and being loving. There's a difference between getting along and being loving. Festus wanted to get along with the Jews, with Paul, with Agrippa. He wanted to get along. Paul wanted to love. If you get along, then you're going to have to water down Christ. But if you want to love, you're going to have to step out with courage to really speak the truth about Christ being a game changer. Let's pray. Father, I praise you and thank you for the beauty and the power of your word. What a blessing. What a significant blessing. And I thank you, Father, for this Bible study, for these men, Lord, for what you do out of verses that we would have skipped over. Um, It is obvious to us, Father, that your word is living and active. And we thank you and praise you for meeting with us this morning. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.